This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to Culture Compass on ABC Radio Australia. I was following my grandma everywhere. They're little sort of cicadas that feed off the grass. So we used to collect them with my cousin. We'd go around collecting them everywhere. And you stick them through um, like a coconut broom, roast them on the fire. And we would go bandicoot hunting and things like that. There's a lot of different foods there that um, my grandma used to cook, which some of them I don't really want to talk about. But anyway, like bass and things like that, you know, the sorts of things that um, you would normally eat. I used to, you know, try for my grandmother. Have you ever eaten a bat? Well, I have. Chances are, if you grew up in the islands, you've eaten a few more things that you wouldn't find on the menu at a restaurant in Melbourne. And that's a good thing. We've been growing and eating foods that are good for us and for the land for thousands of years. But for lots of different reasons, that's changing. I'm Sayuli Salamasina von Reiki, and this is Culture Compass, an exploration of survival, revival, and connection throughout the Pacific. Introduced crops and changing environments have made it harder than ever to live off the land, but it's never been more important to sustain our ways and to eat how we always have. So what are the main threats to food security across the Pacific? And what old ways need to be preserved to create new ways for the future? Jennifer Bayang is a Papua New Guinean TV host and wildlife conservationist. She's passionate about preserving food sovereignty and culinary traditions. Food sovereignty means being able to determine, you know, what type of food we want to eat, how we grow it, the way we sell it, the way we produce it, the way we process it here in PNG. So, I mean, and globally. So that's what it, to me, it means being able to eat what I want to eat and having the access to be able to eat what I want to eat when I want to eat, especially food that is, is local and that's, you know, from PNG and um, being able to be independent. You know, when you think food security-wise, Papua New Guinea being able to be food independent and self-sustainable, I think that's a really important way that we need to be heading in the country, that we need to be looking at how can we encourage our local people to eat more of their own local feed and just, you know, keep that money circulating internally. Wow. And we're talking about food today. So what kind of foods were you eating as you were growing up there? All sorts of foods because, you know, I don't know where my mom was, but, you know, I was pulling my grandma everywhere. So she, you know, anything from um, cicadas, they're called pia, and they're little um, little sort of cicadas that feed off the grass. So we used to collect them with my cousins. We'd go around collecting them everywhere and you stick them through um, like a coconut broom, roast them on the fire and, um, you know, we would go uh, bandicoot hunting and things like that. Um, there's a lot of different foods there that um, my grandma used to cook, which some of them I don't really want to talk about. But anyway, like bass and things like that, you know, there's sorts of sorts of things that um, you would normally eat. I used to, you know, try for my grandmother. So, um, yeah, so, you know, we used to go fishing down the rivers. We'd have these round, um, we call them umben, and um, it's like a, a round cane and you make a 
they make a, use the bilong, the traditional bilong weave, and they put it onto their long band and used to go and sort of go in the rivers and check underneath all the side banks and, you know, collect these really tiny little fish, really, really small. And, um, and then we would cook them up with, um, tapioca. They call it gumaran. So they stir it up and put traditional, um, salt in it, which is made from coconut husk and, yeah, all sorts of different things. That's so interesting. You mentioned bat. That was yes. me growing up in Samoa. We didn't have bat when we were little as well. <laughs> so I can relate to all the foods that you're talking about right now. <laughs> How has the way people access food in that village changed since you were young? Well, a lot of the species and animals that were around before bird species, such as one I was just discussing yesterday, actually, with my cousin, they called a suangin, um, sort of like a quail. These sorts of animals are sort of disappearing, um, you know, and also with introduced species such as tilapia and um, carp into the rivers. There have been, you know, the local indigenous species, endemic species of freshwater fish have also reduced as well. Um uh, also, um, certain plants that we used to have available to us before, like I remember a specific type of sweet potato my grandma always used to cook, and it was called Mamat Narun, um, and that means little little kid. That's the name of the cow, cow Mamat Narun. And um, one of them was purple, and it was so beautiful. I remember I, I just have this really vivid memory of her cooking in the clay pot, this purple cow cow, and just looking at the beautiful coconut cream, and it was all purple, and I, I still remember that sweet potato. And I was collecting them for a while, and then, you know, because I was was out from my farm for a while, and, um, you know, I had other people taking care of it, so they kind of lost those seeds. I'll have to go back and see if I can find some again. But, yeah, there's are some of the um, some of the changes that have happened, certain taro, like we used to plant taro a lot where I was on my farm, um, and in the communities, but you know, with climate change, I remember I had this really big, huge taro garden. But then um, we went through a very dry spell, and they just sort of got—they just basically turned to dust in the ground, really. So there's a lot of different types of food plant species, like yams, traditional beans that we used to have before that people don't plant anymore, that are just disappearing. Different types of yams, you know, and yam is also like a medicinal food as well, and it's very—it's very. It's very um, important culturally but um it really takes people to um really genuinely look after those seeds otherwise you know if the plant is connected to the person so if if, say a family looks after a certain type of yam and then you know maybe the next generation is not so interested in it well that that yam's just going to die away unless somebody's looking after it so you know there's a lot of um food extinction going on around the world now because a lot of these food plants are um you know, in the stewards of people and um, unfortunately with changes, and this is also happening in Papua New Guinea, it's happening globally, but unfortunately with these changes going on, um, people's changes of interest, you know, the youth, the change of interest in um, agriculture, we're losing a lot of um, food diversity as well. So this is most definitely happening in PNG. I understand your family has their own seed story. Can you explain what that means? Well, I think my seed story would be the one with my grandmother with that sweet potato, um, that purple cow cow, you know, that I really loved. And that's something that, is, you know, is passed down from generation to generation. And unfortunately, after we, after my grandmother passed away, he, um, my uncle's um, wife, my auntie, didn't really take care of that particular seed. So we lost that seed. And I think, you know, that's the particular story that, you know, I have with my family is that particular, that particular sweet potato. That was something that was part of our family, which is no longer part of it now. 
Um, and I have very strong ties to that, you know, that memory of that particular food. And it was a really nice, sweet and soft, um, sweet potato as well. So unfortunately, we don't have it anymore. When I go back, I'll try and have a look around and see if I can find it again, see if my auntie still has that. But yeah, it's not there anymore. You're making my mouth water when you say that sweet potato. It sounds very special and it sounds very tasty. <laughs> the really great thing about the purple cow cow and the health aspects of that is that it's very high in um, beta carotene. And, you know, that's really good for your health and, you know, good for eyesight and it's, it's an anti-cancer, you know, all that kind of thing. So a lot of those foods that, um, you know, high in beta carotene are being lost now. So a lot of that nutrition is being lost in communities as well. Gosh, before we go on, can you please go back and look for it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> please make that journey back and go and look for it <laughs> and then tell us when you find it. <laughs> yeah, I'll make sure to do that. Thank you. Is it common for many families to take care of certain seeds? Yeah, it is common for most families to take care of certain seeds because of the different type of climates and the different type of environmental niches that we have in PNG. And so there's a lot of different ecosystems and, you know, ecoregions and different areas within PNG that different types of plants grow and different seeds grow and different families look after them in different ways. And um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really part, a very important part of our culture is taking care of those seeds because a lot of those seeds have traditional customary practices and not rituals, but, you know, practices like bride price or uh, funerals or, you know, whatever it might be. A lot of those um, cultural activities are actually linked to those plants. Why are traditional methods of growing and cooking under threat? Well, with the growing, I think it, it's the effort, it, the effort that it takes, um, you know, to clean a garden and some, some of the traditional ways of gardening are not easy. Um, you know, um, I'll, I'll speak from my culture is that, you know, that we plant a lot of different banana gardens. There's different types of bananas. There's the mara fruit, which is like, it's called the kalapua. And that's, um, it is a particular banana that it can keep reproducing. So you plant one in the ground and then, you know, shoots come off. The first one that comes up, you'll have a banana from it. And then its shoots can grow and then they'll produce more bananas. So that can last, you know, some gardens can be, some banana gardens can be 60 years old. All right. Okay. And then you have the jirup, which is, it's a red type of banana. And that one you can only plant once. And you can only harvest once from it and then you have to get the shoots and then you have to replant it. So that's quite a difficult, it's, it's quite a special banana because it's more difficult to actually take care of and, um, to take to your, um, you know, to take to your yam or your house plant or your, you know, your traditional place of meeting people when everyone comes together. That's like the special banana. So it's more difficult to look after certain changes that have been coming about. I'll give an example of one of, one of the villages near from where I come from is that with people sort of planting cocoa. So there's cocoa gardens, you know, people are, people are now cutting down 40-year-old, 60-year-old banana gardens that have been sustaining them for years and years and years, like it's been feeding their parents, now it's feeding the grandchildren, it's feeding their children. They're cutting them down to plant cocoa. And, you know, they're using that cocoa to go and buy rice with. So what happened during COVID-19 was that, you know, there was all these issues with not being able to move around and, you know, obviously like business slowed down. And so people were stealing from each other's gardens because the, you know, people who kept their banana gardens had food, people that didn't keep it just, you know, were having to steal from other gardens because they'd, they'd cut down those, um, 
particular banana garden. So these are some of the changes that are happening. Um, People are turning to go more towards rice and a lot of families are like, are finding it difficult because their children have been have become become accustomed to eating rice and so you know obviously throw big tantrums and their family can't produce rice for them so families are going to the market selling good food good um healthy food and then exchanging that to buy rice and tin fish um at the market so these are these are some of the changes that are linked to agriculture and are also linked to the diet as well that are happening here in Papua New Guinea. organic agricultural land is in Oceania, with Pacific nations like Samoa and Papua New Guinea leading the way. Karen Mapusua is the president of iFoam Organics International. They're educating people about organic farming practices and sustainable development. What makes a farm organic is is really interesting, actually. So there's several things to think about. There's certified organic, and certified organic farms means that the the farmer complies with a set of standards around how the farm works and how the produce on the farm is grown. Um, but more broadly than that, it's it's a system that's based on principles, and the principles internationally are health, ecology, fairness, and care. Um, in the Pacific, we added another one, culture and traditions, because we recognize that our traditional practices around agriculture are so important and so linked with with who the Pacific is as as people, but also that our land tenure systems are really integrated into that and that works really well with organic agriculture. So there's two things. One's it's the values it sits under and then it's the production practices that are used. Often people think that organic just means not using any agrochemicals. And in one sense that's true, but it's more complex than that. It's more about what you do do on your farm rather than what you don't do. So while you don't use synthetic chemicals, you do things like take care of your soil through composting. You do things like increasing your biodiversity. You do things like making sure you manage your water effectively so that it's your practices aren't damaging water and that you're using water in a conservative way on your farm. So there's it's yeah, it's what you do do, not what you don't do that makes something organic. That's so interesting. Even though we have this great organic industry, what are some of the challenges that Pacific nations face in securing fresh food? Mm. Yeah, so organics is old and new. You know, it's as old as our farming systems, but the idea of certifying it and marketing it in a particular way, that's really what's new. There's also, there's also new practices and new technologies that support organic agriculture. So it's often a, you know, a coming together of traditional practice and new science that gives us the best outputs for organics. So the challenges around fresh food in the Pacific are many. Um, you know, some of them are the things that we always hear about, the isolation, the, the climate risks, the weather. But the reality is we have fed ourselves sustainably for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I think the challenge really comes when we start to focus on crops that are not our crops. And one of the challenges we really have is often that imported food is cheaper than what we produce locally. 
And of course, we're all price sensitive consumers and we have a limited amount of money in our pockets. So sometimes, you know, families are making decisions about what's cheaper rather than what is locally grown and more nutritious and better for you. And that sort of price disparity is another really big conversation. But the reality is that a lot of the food that is imported is subsidized in different ways in the home markets. And a lot of the costs of producing that food are externalized. Um, and by that, I mean, when we grow a thousand acres of corn and there's a lot of pesticide and herbicide on it there's a lot of costs like cost to the environment cost to the water cost to people's health that aren't factored into the price on the supermarket shelf so that makes those foods really cheap and sometimes our own fresh healthy produce seem more expensive yeah i've seen that too could you tell me about how organic farming came to be so prominent Yeah, as always, it's, I mean, I think it's a little bit complex. And as, as we've been talking about, a lot of these practices, um, we've had for years and we were really all of us in the Pacific organic nations until the seventies, really, when we started to get agrochemicals introduced to support mostly the introduced crops. So there was, a, I guess, an organic heart in the Pacific and an organic practice that was always there. Then in the 1990s, there was the recognition and particularly, I think, first of all, in Samoa and Papua New Guinea of the opportunities for market and export market of organically certified products. Because many, but not all, products receive a premium if they're organically certified. So they're worth more in the market. So in Samoa, we were working on that, thinking first about virgin coconut oil and adding value to that through organic certification. And that was a really big driver for the initial round of certification in the Pacific. Aside from these nations, why are Pacific producers so overrepresented in the organic sector? When we talk to a farmer in a village, and this has happened in every country I've had the privilege of, of traveling to and, and visiting, when you start to talk about organics and the principles underneath it and what it means Almost universally, farmers put their hands on their heart and say, that's what my grandfather did. So there's this instant connection to the principles and to working with nature and to really embodying that custodianship of the land, which is so important in the way that Pacific people have been with their environment for such a long time. And I think that's one of the real drivers. For many farmers, that comes first. For other farmers, it is about market opportunity and looking for the niche export and, and building that financial opportunity for themselves. But we've been building two different types of certification systems in the Pacific. One is all about export and it's third party certification and it meets regulatory requirements around the world. But another sort is known as participatory guarantee systems and it's where farmers inspect each other. It's a peer review process. And that has taken off in a huge way in the Pacific, again, because it's it works with our traditional structures and the way villages and communities work. And that's opened up 
the certification possibilities to many, many more farmers who will never get to reach an export market and probably aren't interested in reaching an export market, but do want to be able to protect their land and talk about the work they do in a way that is really empowering for them. There's a lot of talk around about the vulnerabilities of Pacific nations in the face of climate change. But there's also lots of strengths too. What makes the Pacific resilient to these food threats? Yeah, I think sometimes we focus too much on the vulnerabilities and not enough on the strengths. And the strengths include our biodiversity and the way that we have farmed in the past. So one of the the best ways to make a system resilient is to increase biodiversity. And that does a range of things. It helps improve the soil health. It helps improve um, the crop's ability to fight diseases because as a really simple example, it gives the bugs something else to eat that they might prefer. Um, so it does a lot. And that's a critical part of all the agriculture systems across the Pacific is biodiversity. We also have some really super nutritious local food that we can use more um, and come back to away from the imported varieties. And I think that's important as well in climate change and other disruptions. I mean, we had COVID and all of a sudden the boats weren't coming as regularly as they needed to, but we have our traditional food systems to fall back on. Another thing we have, and though it doesn't apply to everyone, we're increasingly urbanized, but access to land. You know, many of our countries still operate under traditional land tenure systems, so people can go back to the farm if they want to and they need to, which is really helpful under climate change scenarios. The agroforestry systems that we've had in the Pacific also add a level of resilience. Um, windbreak protection, those type of things that have happened are critical. We can rebuild some of those. I've only learnt recently that the Pacific used to have a, a history of growing um, hedgerows around farms, which provided windbreaks, it provided biodiversity, it did a whole range of things, but that practice has been lost. So if we can bring back some of those practices, it will be calling on that traditional knowledge to help build our resilience as well. What impact can organic farming have on ensuring food security in the Pacific? Organics is a really important part of this. One of the challenges that we've seen with conventional agriculture is that it doesn't take care of the soil and the soil is essential to, to everything. Um, so organic agriculture is critical because it supports and it rebuilds soil. It addresses the biology of the soil and the, the, the structure of the soil, things that are just absolutely critical. So restoring that, Restoring the biodiversity are really key in making sure that we're looking at food security long term. That biodiversity adds another layer to food security and organic farmers have more diverse farms. So they're going to help provide the nutrition as well as the, the calories that we need going forward. So I think they're probably the key ways. But the other thing is organic systems are more resilient to extreme weather events. So we're about to head into a potential El Nino round, which is potentially quite bad. And that means in some parts of the Pacific, we'll have really, really intense rains, possibly frosts in the highlands. 
In other parts of the Pacific, there's the potential for, for strong drought. Organic systems do well in extreme, more extreme weather events and in places where the land is degraded. And we do have quite a bit of degraded land. So it's a really resilient system when you hit those difficult times and we'll have more difficult times as the climate continues to to warm up um, and we've got to prepare for that. So it's, yeah, it's just about, it is the most resilient system that we have for those impacts. Even though the organic industry seems new, there's a region in the western highlands of Papua New Guinea where people have been growing their own food for 10,000 years. The Cook Valley has one of the oldest continuing agricultural practices in the world, and it's an official UNESCO World Heritage Site. Its fertile land feeds most of Papua New Guinea, and local resident Emmanuel Yu has started up a festival celebrating this proud tradition. In the West Islands, we, the people, we only believe in agriculture. Agriculture is one of the, our main income, source of income, and we sustain our living. Because agriculture is uh, one of the uh, things that we are concentrating on that for our survival and for our income. And uh, West Nylands is one of the places where uh, this one of the very fertile land. Uh, it's not need any chemical to be producing food here. Uh, West Nylands is, uh, you know, very fertile land and it's a volcanic land. Uh, anywhere you're planting any food, uh, it's uh, organic. And that's organically in West Nylands. And West Nylands is the only food basket of Papua New Guinea. And our markets, the small markets, uh, West Nylands can uh, supply any vegetables, whatever, cash crop or anything in your learning agriculture. It's, it's the only food basket in Papua New Guinea. It's the main place to supply all throughout our local markets and supermarkets around the country. And West Nylands people, they only depend and they are uh, smart people in doing agriculture. Because we have the history, we have the very good uh, land in Papua New Guinea, also not in other provinces, but we have 22 provinces. So today Cook is a, a very interesting and significant place. Uh, that story is reaching all throughout the Western Islands and Papua New Guinea. So why did you start this festival? Why we have this uh, festival? Because uh, we have the background of agriculture and we have a strong culture. As myself, I came out from the Kauga tribe, and we have a uh, uh, strong culture. That's why why we trying to organize this uh, cultural festival because uh, it's already written in the history. Professor Jake Golson from Australia National University of Canberra, he came in Papua New Guinea in 1972 for excavation in the archaeological field, and he was the first Australian to discover Cook as one of the early agricultural sites in the world. Therefore, we want to physically demonstration what our ancestors, because today your culture came in and, you know, your culture came in and we, uh, new generations, we are participating, involved in your Western culture, and then we forget about our culture. Therefore, we have the history already, so we're trying our generation and the kids to prove that we have a strong culture. Therefore, we 
trying to, you know, make it uh, come back life coverage again to the people to understand, the generation to understand, and uh, it will not go and die, but they can sustain all this cancer for their lifetime and generation to come. Therefore, the purpose of uh, uh, launching our festival here is to showcase the generation and the people that we have a strong culture, so we don't want to let our culture die. Thanks to Nisha Daly, who originally broadcast that interview with Emmanuel Yu. Mm, I don't know about you, but I'm really hungry after all that. I'm craving the stuff that comes straight out of the ground, the purple sweet potato, or breadfruit with fresh coconut cream. My mouth is watering. Even though I love a pisupo cook-up every now and then, it's the food that we grow and eat fresh. That's my favorite. And if we keep our agriculture alive, we'll be able to keep food on the table for generations to come. Like we say in Samoa, ia manuia. This is Culture Compass on ABC Radio Australia. Culture Compass is hosted by me, Sayuli Salamasina von Raiki. Our ABC Radio Australia executive producer is Falangafulu Inga Stunsner. From Deadset Studios, our producer is Lucy McAfee. Supervising producer is Grace Pashley. And our executive producer is Rachel Fountain. Audio editing and sound design by Nick McCorriston. This episode was produced on the lands of the Turrbal, Jagra and Durrambul people. We pay respects to their elders, past and present. (laughs) 